we go. Here we are yet again. I mean, uh, for the first time, no, recording this episode, uh, just the first time, we did not have like three takes where we had audio problems each independently. I do feel better though. Thank you, Matei, by the way, for being a homie and having an audio problem, so I didn't feel alone. Uh, I didn't want to feel like the sole reason. Uh, especially Oof. if we were recording that whole time with that that uh, limiting problem that you were talking about, it's it's probably better that we start over, anyways. Um, yeah, my voice would have been very deep, and everyone would have been like, "Oh my god, Matei sounds like he's really dead." And I mean, I am really <laughs> I mean, dead, but you still you still that. sound like your voice is a lot deeper than usual. But damn, I mean, as long as your levels are fine, I'll just I'll shift up your voice, and it'll be fine. Hello, everyone. <laughs> yeah, I'll I'll enhance <laughs> the high end. It's like like. Uh, that should honestly be a, a quote for for our podcast in general is we'll fix it in post. We'll fix it in post. Everyone fixes it in post. Yes. Well, anyways, uh, thank you, everybody, for coming. Hello and welcome to OK, I'll Bite, episode number five. This episode will release on Sunday, week five of fall 2021. I'm your host, Aaron, and I'm joined by my usual co-host, Matei. Hi. Um, so this week, we wanted to kind of take it a little bit easier because last week was very hectic. Um, hopefully all of our loyal fans remember last week's dining hall episode and there are no fake fans here that did not listen to it but if you get Mm. a chance go listen to it uh it was essentially we had a guest uh we do not have a guest this week but last week we had a guest ronok come on and we went ballistic to quote the episode description on raiding dining halls and uh that that was fun but i will say while i was editing that um, there was basically no empty space to trim. <laughs> In fact, actually, it was it was its own unique challenge to try and make it so, you know, for example, all three of us weren't talking at once. Editing that was a fun experience. Um, but not only that, uh, careful listeners have noted that we have made several innovative strides in our mastering technology. So our voice qualities have improved somewhat. I hope to continue to improve it because I don't think it's perfect, but uh, basically there's two parts to that. Part number one, I have this massive microphone on my desk that is from my roommate that who is a theater major, but he specializes in um, audio engineering, basically, uh, for like the theater, the stage, which is kind of interesting. Mm. Like he was showing me one of his homework assignments and it was like he had to find a way to fill an auditorium with 81 speakers and he had to arrange them in such a way that all 81 speakers were used and didn't conflict with each other and he had to like like how do you do that that's that is actually interesting i have no idea probably like uh, acoustics and layout positioning but like still like i don't know how where to even get started on that yeah no but he's a god he laid out 81 speakers in like two hours so good for him um Anyway, this microphone is so huge that it completely blocks one of my monitors, so I don't use it usually, but it did help with the audio quality of the last episode, and hopefully this one as well. Um, but also, also, I have figured out what some of the buttons in Adobe Audition do, and I touch <laughs> them sometimes, and then the audio sounds better. So that, is, <gasps> that has been uh, slowly progressing. I've, my, my skills as an audio engineer have been progressing Every, right. Everyone, Aaron's becoming Aaron's becoming an audio professional. Can you all believe that? It's going to be amazing. Not only, well, I'm just enjoying like the fact that your mic is not like 
obviously like we're talking to this for right now right and i can enjoy the fact that your mic is not obviously extremely scuff right like at least this time it's like your real voice yeah i'm not talking through like a a metal toilet paper roll or something <laughs> how i would describe it yeah uh, pretty much anyways so yeah here we are and this episode we wanted to take it easy and talk about some casual stuff catch up and otherwise uh discuss our weeks tell me tell me about the week tell me tell me what we want to do this episode <sighs> look it's been a interesting week uh, midterms have started, which honestly is not the worst part of my week. The worst part of my past few weeks has been my side projects, but not just any side projects, all of the ACM side projects in smaller or higher amounts. But by far, the biggest annoyance has been BreadBot. Uh, Breadbot. Or rather, not BreadBot itself, because BreadBot is awesome, despite his continuous disobedience on the Discord. <laughs> disobedience. Uh, Matei, Matei. What's BreadBot? Oh, yeah, I forgot. Uh, BreadBot is a ACM bot. Well, rather, it's ACM's Discord bot. It is currently only on the general servers, but it could be also on the community servers. There's never been really a discussion about that. But essentially, it is a bot that lets you do various little things like uh, posting random cat images, uh, also like dog images. There's also the ability to... Uh, handle some utility commands that the board uses, like ACM URL. And there's a few other commands in here and there, like uh, whether it is leak time and various in-jokes that the Discord has. It's a very simple bot, nothing too crazy. Really, the thing that I hated the most about it initially was the fact that when it was initially coded, it was not designed to be extensible in a very simple sense. What it did initially was it would physically iterate over files directly, and it would have very weirdly specialized ways of handling edge cases for commands that needed more control over the way that Discord sent commands over to the bot. And it was very weird and extremely uncommented and hard to write on. So I refactored it last spring and now it's much more workable. But this week, ah, Discord just wanted to ruin, well, not this week, the last week, but Discord just wanted to ruin my day. Like it just wanted to ruin my day because of slash commands. And I'm so angry. <laughs> <sighs> Look, so basically what happened was Discord made this new feature called slash commands where if you type slash, you have the access to every bot's command, not just like Discord's weird built-in little two commands like shrug and whatever. And essentially the whole thing about it is uh, now all commands are called interactions. And basically whenever I talk to you as a person, uh, sorry, when I talk to a bot, I call slash and basically I don't send to it the message itself. I send to it a weird specialized interaction payload that then I have to extract and modify, which is a fine way of handling the actual methodology for it. The thing that I hated the most about it isn't that. What I hated was the fact that no interactions are typed. So for example, if I call command, I don't know, echo, it's not the same uh, like structure as the command ACM URL, but the type is the same. So I have to sit there and manually parse the types for every individual command, and it is insane. Like there is no way to check types, and I have to check for all the variables. Everything is null or undefined. Like I'm working in TypeScript, and yet it doesn't feel like I'm working in TypeScript. It's absolutely <laughs> disgusting. And what's even worse is that somehow the slash command interaction is the same as a button interaction. Right, so like now little commands can have buttons in them, 
So like you can press like, I don't know, like uh, run or something and then it like changes the initial interaction. But the part about that is that basically now when I receive an event from Discord, just because I received the button click, it's the same interaction as if I receive a command. But that's not the same thing, right? If, I, if I'm using the button, it's a different command entirely. Like it's, I'm having to handle the previous command that I had before and it pisses me off. Uh, and it was hard, but I mean, eventually <laughs> I love, I I love how it. you like took a step away from your microphone. No, because I don't want to clip because I'm so angry, but, uh, that's in the end. That's just how it is. I did manage to fix it eventually. And now slash commands are the only way to do it and no other way, though it, it still makes me laugh. The fact that people still use the exclamation point every once in a while and then they're like oh yeah i forgot it's slash commands now and then they just go slash ecm url or whatever so yeah yep um so you mentioned that's interesting though because they're they're cramming a bunch of stuff in the api now all at once right you had these slash commands and then now i i looked at the discord js documentation the discord api documentation page and i'm like user interactions message interactions buttons what is all this this is this is junk this is junk from slack specifically because i i actually have a background working in slack bots and i built one for my last internship and when i saw this it literally feels like a copy paste of those features you know when you (laughs) compare that to like you know now discord has threads and all of this other stuff, I literally think they're trying to kind of become a drop-in replacement for Slack so they can start enticing businesses, which is weird to me, the thought that they haven't been making enough money off of their emoji profit model. Oh, yeah. No, also, it doesn't make sense why they would bait businesses into it, right? Like, think about it. What business would have the ability to use emotes from anywhere else on Discord? That just is a recipe for disaster. (laughs) Like... I would, like, if I had, like, a work Discord, I would not want to be able to use my uh, expand dong emote of Donkey Kong's <laughs> face. Like, I wouldn't want to use that in an actual Discord at work, in my work. Well, like, I feel like yeah, that's maybe Maybe you disaster. wouldn't. Maybe you wouldn't. Uh, so, at Splunk, which is my past internship, I'm about to violate my NDA here. Um, how many emojis, how many custom emojis do you think the Splunk workspace has installed on it? At least 10,000. It's around 17,000 custom emojis. I was right. I was right. <laughs> it is a, a bonkers, a bonkers amount of emojis. Uh, they're oh, really, yeah, I'm sure. They're really milking that, that enterprise. Uh, anyways, I thought that was very funny. Um, but yeah, it feels like they're copying the features. Hopefully it'll work out for them. I do think that Discord is better than Slack, but that's not really saying much. Um, and if they could do so while also learning from Slack's mistakes, that'd be great too. Um, <laughs> anyways, so you, the other thing I've noted is that, uh, to be completely honest, your experience with updating BreadBot with for this new API strikes fear into me, like terror into the very oh, corners CTF of my bot, soul. Right? CTF bot, so oh. <laughs> yes, ACM Cyber, my org manages san diego ctf which is our annual competition no plug um (laughs) with ctf bot which is a discord bot that facilitates the entire competition and if you were to compare red bot and ctf bot ctf bot is much more complex by necessity 
like literally dozens of commands and its own managed database where it tracks like this team server team user abstraction and propagates it over multiple servers at once and keeps everything in sync and it's just a nightmare and we wrote it back when slash commands were available but they weren't implemented in any of the major libraries so i ended up having to like monkey patch a support layer to let us use slash commands and that works but now that I have to go in and update it, because, you know, we're obviously going to do the competition again this year. We're probably going to use the bot again. I have to go into that bot and update it to use the latest version of Discord JS. And now I've got like user interactions. It's very, it's a huge breaking change. Like I think literally the version we're on is two gateways, two gateway versions behind the current Discord JS version. So I imagine the, that refactor. I mean, if you had fun with your refactor, I can only imagine how much fun my refactor will be. Let's just say that I read your code and Breadbot has like a separate layering and abstraction between the part that communicates with Discord and the part that is the command. So basically the logic that runs the commands is separate from the one that runs the Discord API. So all I had to do was modify the layer that changes the API routes a little bit with a few small differences to the originals. And it basically worked out fine. It wasn't huge, massive changes in like the code functionality. As opposed to you, where I can I saw parts of your code literally being directly patched with slash commands. So I'm just gonna say you're screwed. Really, <laughs> really screwed. <laughs> yeah, I'm aware, and it'll be a good time either way. But we are using TypeScript, so I guess it we have that. It, 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 <laughs> it does not help. Bit. No, no, it does not help. Look, here's the thing, Ray. Because when you call an option from slash commands, you can either a receive the option as it is right like i don't know a string or it's null and there isn't like the ability to say this has to be a required argument right because there are required arguments for certain commands right but literally they are impossible to quantify because there's no types so when i would say look i want to get an option i can't just be like get required option and then have it error out or have it not error out because i know for a fact that it is required no it's not it's not going to work no i'm giving it null and now literally typescript is pointless because i just have to carry this little null everywhere and i have to be like if this option is null then do this and that's literally what i do in javascript and it feels terrible but oh well hey but it, but at least your ide will scream at you if you forget to check it so that is the point of typescript so to speak Okay, at least that, but I'm still pissed. Yes, that's fair. <laughs> you have every right. Um, so yeah, I that's a that's a good time. Um, and that's not even your classes, is it? Hmm. Well, <laughs> my classes are fine. I don't know. I have a more like I took a, a bit of a break this quarter. I have some difficult classes, but not like they're pretty fun. So they're like I'm enjoying them. Uh, in fact, I actually have two exams today that I'm completely uh, procrastinating on, but it's fine. It's fine. I don't have to take them. Uh, however, uh, you told me very briefly in the Discord that your classes are worse for some reason. Yes. So how many classes are you taking, Matei? Well, I'm taking 16 units, four. Nice, nice. So I'm taking one sixteenth of that. I'm taking one unit. Um, okay. And what's that unit? <laughs> It's one class. By the way, I'm part-time, everybody, so that's why they don't kick me out, but I'm taking one unit. It is a math class. It is a 
lower division math class. It is technically uh, in the 90s series, um, so it's not like mm. upper division. And it is Math 96, which is oh, the seminar. seminar. I, oh my god, I completely phased out. Yes, I was I was present for the most important part <laughs> of your class so far. <laughs> so this class meets for one hour a week um, in the big courtyard outdoor tent in Ravel. And the professor shows up and talks about some Putnam problems. So for context, the Putnam exam is basically a big math contest. And when I say big, it's like pretty much the biggest. Um, happens a couple of times a year. The way the exam works is you come in, it's six hours long, and it's in two parts where I think... It's six questions in each part. So part one is like three hours and you get six questions. And part two is three hours and you get six questions uh, with a small break in the middle, which, you know, thank God. Um, <laughs> but, but like, so literally longer than most of your finals. Although I have had a six hour final before. It's not fun. Don't recommend it. Um, the questions themselves are each worth 10 points. So the highest score you can get on a Putnam exam is 120 points and the questions range across all topics of math um so the median score on this exam thousands of people take it every year the median score on this exam is zero <laughs> and the average score is two um and so it's it's hard basically like if, if you score towards the top you are considered a putnam fellow the professor who's teaching this class is a UCSD professor. His name is Daniel Kane. He is a four-time Putnam Fellow, meaning, which, by the way, you can only be a Putnam Fellow when you're in college. That means that while he was studying at Harvard, at which he got a 4.0, by the way, he got Putnam Fellow four times in a row. Every so Daniel year. Kane is a god. Yes, every, every year that he was at Harvard, <laughs> while getting a 4.0, Oh he took the Putnam exam and was like one of the top like 10 people in the country, basically, Damn. to take the exam. I think they take in five per year, but I, I don't quote me on that. I, I haven't done my research. Um, there have been perfect scores in the past. Like, I think maybe five total people ever have ever gotten a perfect score. Uh, Daniel Kane is a really cool math professor. He does lots of work and he's obviously super smart. Um, and he hosts this class as a passion project. He also let uh, San Diego CTF hide flags in some of his old lecture materials from last year. I like sent this long email chain to him where I was basically convincing him to let me hide a flag in one of his old published works for the purposes of like an OSINT challenge. That was fun. Nice. Um, yes, it was. It was fun. And. So anyway, back to the class. This class is basically a seminar that prepares you or tries to prepare you for this exam. Um, you do real Putnam questions that have been asked in the past, and you try to learn the strategies and techniques to do them. Now, this class is lower division because technically you can do all of the work required for this class using the techniques that you learn in lower division mathematics. However... That does not mean it is easy. Uh, no, it is not. So, so what is the workload of this class, you might be asking? Well, the workload of this class is simple. You get homework once a week. Each homework assignment is three Putnam problems. You don't have to do any of them except for one. You have to do one of them per week. And you don't even have to get the right answer 
on this one. Uh, you just have to like give an honest attempt on one of these questions and per week, and then that's that's enough for credit. And you just do that 10 times, and that's the whole class. And at the end of the class, you have to show up to the Putnam exam. You don't even have to take it like or answer any questions. You don't have to like get a high score or anything. You just have to take the Putnam exam, and that is your final in the class. Um, and it's the hardest class I've ever taken in my life. It is insanely difficult. These questions are obscene. Um, and most of the time, I spend roughly six hours on homework each week. That is one problem. One single math problem. Do you know what it's like to stare at a single <laughs> math problem in a chair for six hours? It's no, fun. I do not. I love it. I'm having the time of my life. And that's my class. So I noticed when you came to uh, the study session that board had last week that you were working on this homework and you showed us the free problems you had last week and you picked the one with the, uh, the floor infinite something. Uh, I'll yes. be entirely honest. I saw that and it just gave me immediate flashbacks of high school and me essentially doing Putnam problems, but not really solving them at all. And I was like, yeah, I'm out. I'm going to go do my thing. And it was just <laughs> like, I saw you just, I saw you dying. <laughs> like I, I could see. Okay. So just to give some context, Geisel has this st huge study room that has eight mini whiteboards that you can share amongst people in that study room because it's like a really big one like it has like eight total desks or something and out of those eight whiteboards four wait no it wasn't eight it was ten i think but out of those four were used by people drawing funny stuff on them from previous study sessions and then other five of them were used for your proof like just <laughs> you could see the various squeeze theorems and estimations for the floor functions on the wall and i was like yep whoever comes back here is going to be terrified and yeah it was it was pretty insane did you get the correct answer actually i so i did get the correct answer because this was one the reason i chose that problem is because i knew what the correct answer was because the professor told us in that class um whether or not i did the correct logical steps and with sufficient justification to arrive at that correct answer is the question i don't know um i remember i got last week's homework back actually and the the grading on it was like, um, basically, I stated something without sufficient proof. And he was like, you need to show this. But I proved it on like the next line. Um, and so he like, you know, like scratched it out and drew an arrow like you should rearrange these. So it's mm. very important to like prove each and every step. Um, otherwise, you know, things go bad. So it it's it's a fun class at the end of the day. I actually I've taken the Putnam exam before. In community college, I was tricked into taking it. Basically, my <laughs> math professor at the time was like, you should all go take this fun little math contest thing. It's it's not a big deal. Um, and however, it's out of 120 points. And however many points you get is how many points I'll add to your final grade. And so obviously everyone was like, oh, hell yeah, let's, let's go take this exam. It's, it'll be easy A in this whole class. I won't have to study for the rest of it. Um, Jokes on my, you know, my professor's giggling to himself because the median score is zero, right? Um, yeah. But jokes on him, I got an eight. So Ooh. I went up a letter, <laughs> which I desperately needed in that class. Uh, so I, I felt it was a fluke. I almost solved one problem correctly. That was that was my Putnam exam experience the first time I took it. Um, 
And I don't expect to do much better than that uh, this time, but either way, it's it's fun. It's problem solving, you know. Um, I am taking it with some friends, and we get along and bond over our collective sorrows when solving problems <laughs> from this class. It's a good time. It's a good time. Yeah, it is. It's definitely a good time to suffer together with friends. It's basically the definition, the textbook definition of what CS majors go through. So you know, it's fun. So <sighs> we probably have enough time here to cover one more topic. Um, I picking from my my threshold here. I I see that you uh wanted to discuss the 2021 Apple event. Yeah, no, this is going to be a very quick 30 seconds. Uh nobody cared about the first part. Uh everyone's caring about the last part. The MacBooks are absolutely positively insane. Uh just to give a quick clarification, uh they're basically really powerful now. They use the Apple Silicon new processors. Uh, they have an insane amount of GPU power. Uh, basically, the only thing that I had to say is that I can't believe we reached the point in, in like computing where specialized circuitry at this point is like a positively insane. Like it's unbelievable how much power you can fit in like that little of a space. And it's just I don't know. It's a it's an definitely I'm not happy. The open source uh, Linux fan in in me is not happy that this technology is entirely proprietary. But in a way, I'm also happy for the general world of computing that this is even possible to begin with. So. Uh, that's all I have to say. Just a real quick, like, holy cow, I can't believe this is a real thing. Uh, I'm probably getting one eventually, whenever they'll deliver in next year. And that's all I have to say about the Apple event. But you, you have been trying to tell me something. For the past, <laughs> no, no, no. I, I have a follow-up. I have a follow-up oh, on, follow on this topic. Okay. Yes. I, okay. I was curious about it. Like, are there any downsides about the MacBook, new, like the, the new silicon? Because I've, I've heard some unsavory stories about you know plat the platform stability kind of taking a decline within recent years partially due to this new silicon that they've been using in their products for a while uh, do you know anything about that or is oh that, that it's just a rumor no it's not a rumor technically it's the architectural change that is probably causing a huge amounts of issues so basically m1 machines run on arm rather than x86 and the problem with that is that it's an entirely different instruction set and you can't exactly virtualize easily. They have this whole thing called Rosetta, but it doesn't work as well to emulate x86 instructions. And uh, the reason why it's unstable is not necessarily because their software is wrong, though I'm sure there are bugs in there. I'm like 100% sure there are. It's the, the main problem is that no one has coded for that yet, right? Like people have yeah. to code specifically the uh, different versions for those pieces of software. Now, some you know pieces of software already had like support for it because you know all they had to do was like I don't know get the compiler to support the ARM instruction set that the M1 processors use, and then I don't know like all they had to do is just recompile their software. For some, it was that easy. For others, not as much. Uh, for example, uh, Adobe Creative Cloud software and the M1 release had a very tough time porting, but they eventually managed to do it. Um, even uh, DaVinci, the video editor, also had a tough time porting. Uh, generally, it was because of this instruction change. And the reason for a, a huge disadvantage for developers is Docker is still dead on the M1 Mac. It's still very difficult That is to a use huge deal. Because uh, Docker still does not have proper like support for M1. And it's going to be a long time until it does because it effectively requires... Uh, allowing the, M the Linux kernel to be virtualized over M1 machines, which is possible, but not to the level that Docker needs. So whenever that happens, it's going to happen. Uh, but 
until then, uh, it is still an unbelievable amount of power. Uh, I remember one of my friends uh, training a, a neural network uh, on their M1 Mac, and it was literally just like no fan, and it did it faster than my laptop does. And my laptop is a seven kilogram behemoth with two very <laughs> loud fans. It's it's a very like it's pretty insane in my eyes. Though admittedly, my laptop has some age, but still, like it's it's just insane. That's interesting. Um, Docker. They might end up having to take the Docker on Windows approach of running Docker in a literal Linux VM, but having like one instance of that VM, so it's actually like not that bad, and it's headless and all that kind of stuff, and everything just connects to that Docker VM, and you know that's not without its own set of issues docker on windows is not perfect by any means but it's surprisingly robust um and windows has been very much into becoming the best platform to run linux on <laughs> yeah in in recent updates and uh we might we might see mac start to go on that trajectory rather than being like unix like which it's kind of relied on in the past to be compatible with a lot of linux tools um but under the hood, it's really not that Unix-like at all. It's def well, it's Unix-like, but it's definitely not Linux-like, right? They're completely yeah. different under the hood. It's and BSD, so, so it's definitely much much more different than one might expect. Yep, 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 yep. I actually remember running into like a weird issue once, and we could cut this out because this is a total tangent, but I remember doing a CTF which relied on creating a tar file with a symbolic link inside of it so basically the gnu version of tar supports this flag where you can create a tar file with symbolic links inside of it and mac os does not support that like the mm -hmm. mac os version which is the bsd version of tar does not support that and so that challenge was like misleadingly difficult for people that were on mac um it's it, i just thought that was funny also yeah I, I've I've noticed other weird issues that are only apparent to hood. Like, um, there's challenges that involve exploiting the predictability in seed random, um, but different platforms use different seed random implementations, even though it's supposed to be like random because it's technically an undocumented implementation. You, you do whatever you want as long as it meets these requirements. Mm. So <laughs> you can you can even if you have like. Linux running in a compatibility window layer for Windows, it will generally like hook into the pseudo random number generator implementation in Windows. So it literally won't work the way you expect it to. You uh, won't be generating the same like predictable numbers. So yeah, anyways, that was a total tangent, but there, there's lots of differences under the hood is the thesis of that. Um, mm -hmm. We can touch on one last topic. What are your thoughts? Lantenna, please. Please, Lantana. Okay. This will this will be a me. really short one. Yes. Okay. So what Matei is talking about is uh, a topic that we have literally tried to talk about for three weeks now, and it's just been kind of like the back burner idea, you know, behind all of our major topics. And you know us, we go on tangents, so yeah, we've never been actually teasing you for around. so long. Come on, please tell me. What is <laughs> and and I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna keep this intro going too because I, I want to really drag it out here, but. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the uh the the oh god collecting myself again the the topic that i wanted to talk about was like super fast too it's like two minutes um it's just something that i read that i thought was kind of hilariously cool and also bad um but now that we finally have a moment i guess i'll finally reveal to the open world and to matei 
this topic. So, oh my God, please, Lantenna. Please, 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 please. What is Lantenna? Great question. So, Lantenna is a paper that was published recently. Um, in cybersecurity, the hot new thing is to uh, reveal side channel attacks, right? So, a side channel attack in cybersecurity is basically um, instead of hacking into a system through a conventional means such as software, you can extract information from that system through some kind of side channel that was not expected. Um, I think the best way to think about it is like, you know, if I have a video of your monitor, I can see what's on it without hacking your system, right? So that's a side channel attack, air quotes. Um, if I just record your screen from like far away, I can see what you're doing, right? That's, it's a hack, air quotes. And if I record your key presses while you're pressing the keyboard, like while you're entering your password, that's a side channel attack to steal your password. It didn't require me to hack into Google, right? But I know your Google password, that kind mm -hmm. of thing. Um, but they're way more complex than that. Um, absolutely insane things. Like there are people that have written software that can see the, that, that, that can like see the way light is reflecting off of your face and like infer what's on your monitor based on that. Wow. It, it's you there's um there's ones where they put a mic like within five feet of your laptop, and what it can do is it can hear it can pick up frequencies that are emitted by certain processors when they do certain computations, and it can literally determine which instructions are being executed with which values and literally infer all of the instructions running on your computer at an instant just by being a few feet away and having like a microphone. Damn. It, which is obscene. This new one, Lantenna, is a way to bridge the gap in uh, it ba basically to steal information off of air-gapped computers. The way air-gapped computers work is like basically they're not connected to the open internet at all, right? So how do you get information off of a, a network? So you might have computers that are connected through like a LAN cable, but they're not connected to the internet or anything else. How do you get information out of that system into you know your system probably somewhere on the internet well lantenna is an attack where if you take control of a pc that has a lan cable like an ethernet cable connected to it you can modify frequencies and like modulate the electromagnetic waves going in and out of this ethernet cable in such a way that you are technically using the Ethernet cable as a giant antenna with which to broadcast radio waves, which can then be exfiltrated and absorbed by a receiver up to five miles away. Wow. Um, which is obscene. That is so comically bad. Yeah. Uh, basically, what you learn from side channel attacks is that um, there is there's nothing you can do to protect yourself. Uh, no amount of software engineering is going to solve these problems. It's comical, but we'll provide a link to the discussion on Lantenna in the show notes. Um, so go check it out if you're interested in taking a look at that paper or even just a summary of that paper. Okay, so thank you so much for listening, fellas. If you liked the show, come tell us. Just visit acmurl.com slash podcast. You can leave us a voice message directly, or you can shoot us a message on the official ACM Discord. We will answer your questions, so don't be shy. And thank you, everybody, for listening. See you next week. Bye. Adiós.